I believe we have to start. And welcome to the Merchant Center. Everybody is welcome. I mean, you are some, most of you are at home here. And we are happy to uh, see everyone here on this day. Uh, Elizabeth Kassab joins us as a fellow researcher at Erfurt University in Germany. Her overall interest has been in the philosophy of culture, both Western and non-Western, with a particular focus on post-colonial debates on cultural authenticity and critique. Her most recent book, Contemporary Arab Thought, Cultural Critique and Comparative Perspective, is actually an examination of critical thinking in Arab and post-colonial, mainly African and Latin American debates on culture in the second half of the 20th century. Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth studied business administration and philosophy at the American University of Beirut and continued her graduate studies in philosophy at Fribourg, uh, University in Switzerland. In 1999, um, she was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to work on her research project at the New School University in Rear. After that, she was visiting scholar at Columbia University for several years and a visiting associate professor at the Yale Center for International and Area Studies in 2006 and 2007. Most recently, she was a research fellow at the German Orient Institute in Beirut. Um, she uh, had talked today, will answer questions that arise from the study of contemporary Arab thought and the notable <laughs> amount of critical effort deployed by Arab intellectuals since the mid of the 20th century in dealing um, with questions of culture and politics. She'll focus on the recent Arab intellectual history from within a large comparative post-colonial approach, articulating reflections on the intellectual, cultural, and political meaning of enlightenment in Arab and post-colonial contexts. Uh, this event is co-sponsored by the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures and the Middle East Study Center. I wish to thank all uh, co-sponsoring institutions uh, which made this event happen. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Kassab. Thank you. Thank you very much, George. Uh, George and I come from Lebanon, but it is in Germany that we met some couple of decades ago. And I never thought at the time that we would uh, meet here again. Actually, we met again in Germany 20 years later, this summer or this spring. And uh, this is uh, how the idea of my visit uh, came about. And he said, well, why don't you come and uh, speak to us? So I'm very uh, thankful for this invitation and happy to see you all. Um, I hope I won't ruin your lunch with my uh, talk uh, um, with this uh, complicated question of the Enlightenment. Uh, my talk 
is in the form of a question, but the question is not there to be a pretext for an answer. I don't have the answers. So what I'm going to do with you is just explore the question itself. What is enlightenment? Um, and obviously for me this question uh, rose from my study of contemporary Arab thought. Um, and what I'm going to do is um, start with the common sense meaning of enlightenment. When we say, I got enlightened, or that today I am an enlightened person, or enlightened about this or that, we mean a couple of things. For instance, we mean that we now have come to notice things that had escaped our attention before. Or we can also mean that um, we realize we made certain wrong assumptions, that we followed wrong explanation tracks, that we thought some elements were determining factors and then we realized that it was not the case. An interesting way of getting enlightened is also to realize, to note that um, some emotions or some motivations had pushed us towards a certain approach and that we were not aware of these motivations and now we are. So I'm going to use this basic common sense meaning of enlightenment to explore this question in contemporary Arab thought. Now obviously uh, when I say that this question came about as I worked on contemporary Arab thought, I mean that in the last few decades, say in the second half of the 20th century, we find, I found, quite a substantial production in critical thinking, dealing with some fundamental questions such as nationalism, Arabism, identity, authenticity, of course, uh, modernity, tradition, reason, Islamic reason, uh, progress, democracy, particularism versus universality, cultural specificity. Well, I'm sure most of you know how central these uh, concepts are and uh, have been and still are in post-colonial uh, contexts. So I read Arab thinkers who re-examined these concepts by discovering and through that pointing out wrong assumptions, not very productive tracks of explanation, um, counterproductive consequences, even dangerous consequences of certain concepts. For instance, essentialistic uh, understandings of identity and so on. So my question was then, if Arab thinkers deployed such an important, in my mind, an important effort of critical re-examination, can we say that they made us become enlightened? And in that sense, can we say that we live in an age of enlightenment in the Arab world because we have been through a process of learning 
and we have become wiser. Now, I need to put this um, section or this phase of Arab thought in the uh, broader intellectual history. And when I speak of the modern uh, um, intellectual history in the Arab world, as you know, most of us uh, start that with the famous period of the Nahda, say mid-19th century and onward. So a history of 150 years. Now, one way of representing this history is to present it through three typical questions. It, in my opinion, there are three different phases in this history of 150 years of intellectual uh, production. And what I'm going to suggest to you is three questions that typify, if you wish, the mood or the basic concern of each of these phases. The Nahda, which means Renaissance in Arabic, say between mid-19th century till mid-20th century, um, is characterized by the following question, which became very famous and which was also the title of a landmark uh, um, publication. Why did others progress while we lagged behind? And the occasion of this question is the encounter with the West. Some, well, many uh, trace it back to the Napoleonic invasion of, of Egypt. And then the realization say that, my God, here are people who are better equipped, better organized, with a better level of knowledge of science, doing economically better than us. Um, so in that sense, it is inevitably some kind of a comparative awareness of where we are and where other people are. And of course, it's not a very pleasant realization that others are doing better and they can overpower you with that. So the question, why then, how is it that others have progressed while we have lagged behind? Much of the literature of that period turns around this question. People offer explanations and also recipes as to how to come out of this predicament. Now, although this is an upsetting experience, it's not nice to realize that others are better than you, it is not a totally depressing question because it seems to me from my reading of this literature is that there was a deep sense of confidence and a sense of possibility that if you could only grasp the secret of progress, understand why these other people are doing better, and then apply it to yourself, then you would inevitably um, um, overcome this gap and um, prosper in your turn. And then uh, momentous transformations take place in that region, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the coming of the British and the French mandates, then the wave of independence. So by the time you reach mid-20th century, it is the time of state building, nation building, and of course a time of great hopes that now you can rule yourself. Of course, it is not the united 
state, Arab United States that many people dreamt of, but you had at least, at least the formal independence. But that hopeful time is also the time of the founding of the State of Israel, again an upsetting experience and a, a feeling of a realization of a loss, of an unjust um, dispossession of rights and, and um, lands, uh, uh, deportation of people and so on. But again, that negative experience was sort of connected with the hope that if you get your act together, you will be able to make that right again. And the idea was that if you get rid of the corrupt leaders that you have who are still in the old colonial system, you will then be able to have a patriotic leadership. So it's the time of the revolutions, 1952, Abdel Nasser, sexy, attractive, speaks the language of the people, connects, communicates very well. Um, he has all the time to prepare the army, to get uh, armed, to... Other revolutions are in the making in Syria and Iraq. The Ba'ath Party gets um, prepared there to take over. All of this fills people with a lot of hope that this time things, that the humiliation will be erased, that um, rights will be won back. Unfortunately, a disastrous defeat comes instead, 1967, and I think that there is a consensus in the Arab world among people, among artists, among intellectuals, that that is really a turning point. And for me, that is really the beginning of this, what I call the second phase. And if I want to give one question to summarize the mood of the second phase, is a question that we find in many titles again, why did the Nahda fail to deliver its promises. In the sense that people were surprised that after so much thinking, so much mobilization of efforts, revolutions, uh, really popular uprisings, um, the replacement of rulers, that religious reform, educational expansion, the um, founding of many new institutions, really a lot of well-meant efforts end up in this disastrous defeat. And of course now it becomes a little more difficult to limit your crit criticism to others. The bad Israelis, the bad Westerners, yes they are still bad, but you cannot but sort of wonder why you didn't get things better. So it is a time of internal examination, hence the critical aspect to it. And um, the reaction of many thinkers were, was to say, well, apparently the Snada, which we thought was really uh, uh, a, a, a renewal of our culture, that it was perhaps not fundamental enough, that was not deep enough. It's a traumatic experience because, as I said, it, it comes after very high hopes. 
And people cannot but put themselves in question. And not only on the strategic level, on the military level, that maybe the armies could have done something else or the rulers uh, um, could have done other political calculations. No, the, the, the questioning deals with a more comprehensive uh, picture that maybe in the modes of thinking there was something that was not right, that our way of dealing with the world, our, the way, our way of viewing the world is not appropriate. So you have this soul-searching, deep reflection on, on issues and the whole literature that is produced, which uh, was the object of my book. But although it is a very traumatic time and a um, really quite a disastrous experience, there was still a sense of hope again that this time, if you deepen critique, if you really think more seriously and more fundamentally about things, then something that you could make a change, and this time really a good change. Unfortunately, by the time we reach our days, that hope is gone. And I think that now, the last decade or couple of decades, are really uh, times of much despair and an absence of hope. And I think that the word that comes most often in my readings, whether it's the newspapers in the morning or journal articles or even books, the word that comes most often in the literature written today in the Arab world is that of ajiz, which means helplessness, incapacitation, uh, the absence of a sense of possibility, a total helplessness that you as a person, as a thinker, as an artist, you are really totally incapacitated. That the hope to change anything, to get anything right, is gone. So this is, if you want, a little bit the paradox that on the one hand, you have this fantastic critical production that has enlightened us on many fundamental issues. And on the other hand, you have this very thick despair in which we bathe. And I think that this despair is not an intellectual one in the sense that you know a couple of poets or a couple of uh, academics in some obscure office uh, have these states of mind of, of uh, uh, sadness or spleen or no no this is I'm talking about a very real despair on all levels economic political cultural so are we in an age of enlightenment can we speak that there is light in our world when there is so much darkness now, to give you a little bit an idea of what I mean by this critical thinking or this corpus of, of critical 
uh, examination. I will mention a few figures. Hopefully, I will not do name dropping, but I need to give you some sense of what I'm talking about. And the people I will mention here, again, are not marginal figures. I'm talking about major central public figures who are more or less uh, household names, perhaps not, but that every average Arab, I think, literate Arab, would recognize at least. For instance, Constantine Zrail, who he lived long, he wrote over 60 years, he died a couple of years ago. He is the ideologue of Arab nationalism. And so this man was writing right after the um, first defeat in 48, then again in 67, and the telling, one of the telling titles of his book, uh, Man and Nakba, The Meaning of the Disaster. And then in 67, the other telling uh, title, Man and Nakba Mujaddadan, again the meaning of the disaster. At every time, trying to dig deep into the reasons that led to this defeat, but also at the same time talking about the general state of the culture, and the one thing that I want to mention here is that this man developed a notion of nationalism that was non-deterministic. Over and over again, consistently, this man, in, a ve in very clear terms, said that his concept of nationalism was not nas uh, deterministic at all. It was not at all the idea of an Arab soul, uh, existing from eternity and, uh, you know, determining who we are, etc. This man spoke of agency, of responsibility, of choices, of rational revolution. Now today we think we are very smart because we have discovered that essentialism is a bad thing, no? We all pride ourselves that we are now enlightened and we know better that essentialistic notions of identity are not good. Well, this man in the 40s was saying that in very clear terms, and he is the ideologue of Arab nationalism. Amazing. A second figure, he was Syrian, spent much of his time in Lebanon. The second character I want to mention, Abdullah Al-Urwi, a Moroccan, again historian, I think, um, who in the late 60s wrote a very f book that became very famous across the Arab world on the critique of Arab ideologies. And if I want to pick up one notion or one idea of his work was the importance of contextualizing. That we in, in the Arab world of the time are dealing with, with ideas has to be very much directed by historicization. We need to know where these ideas develop, for instance, Marxism or other ideas, that they belong to a certain history. We have to know well that history, Western history, and then if we want to make use of it, to make sense of it for us, we need to know our own history very well. So this business of contextualizing and historicization that is picked up by many other thinkers of the period. 
Another figure I'm sure you're, many of you are familiar with is um, the famous uh, Sadiq al-Azm, who in the 70s, uh, he also writes a book right after the, the defeat about the reasons. Uh, it's called Naqd al-Zati Ba'd al-Hazima, self-critique after the defeat. And what is famous for, again, a Syrian philosopher, studied philosophy at Yale, wrote on Kant. Lazim said, I realized that I, as an Arab thinker, an Arab academic, I could not anymore sit down and write dissertations about Kant when the reality I live in is so dramatic that I need to address. And this, I think, I find also very interesting that thinkers realize that they have to address the realities they live in. And Al-Azam writes against religious thinking. He, he, for him, one of the reasons why we got things wrong was that because we, don't, we haven't learned to think scientifically. And in those 70s, you find parallel discussions in the West, you know, these endless debates about Catholicism and Marxism, faith and reason, uh, spirituality and materialism. It's a bit in that style, but he's very blunt about it. His book is banned. Uh, he's accused. Uh, he's brought to trial. What is, and of course, I'm not saying that the, the, the interesting thing is that these people spoke the truth. Of course not. But that they raised these kinds of questions, drew attention to a number of things. The other uh, thinker I, I wish to mention here, I think is my favorite, is a playwright, Syrian playwright, who died perhaps uh, 10 years ago or less, Sadalla Wannous. He wrote a little play right after the defeat in 68 called Haflet Samar Min Ajil Khamsih Zairan, Entertainment Evening for the 5th of June, which is the day, the date of the war. And for Wanus, again striking for me reading him from my location, the reason the, the, the cause of the malaise or, or the problem was the disenfranchisement of people. That people were prevented by their own regimes, by their own rulers, to participate in the decision making, in the defense of the country, in, from being involved and sadly what he writes in 68 will become only worse and worse. Um, and I think that his, his political reading of the malaise is very interesting because if we look at this history of modern Arab thought, it's interesting to see how the political reading of the malaise goes up, up and down. In the Nada period, for many people, it was obvious that the problem was political. Uh, somebody like Tahtawi, who in the mid-early, um, in 1830, goes to Paris as uh, the chaperon, the guide of a bunch of students from Egypt, uh, comes back to Egypt and writes his memoirs. And for the man, it was so clear as to why others have progressed and we had uh, lagged behind. He says, the reason why they are economically more prosperous, 
that they are more advanced in everything, in knowledge, in, 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 um, in uh, uh, the army, in politics. It's because they have political justice. It's because the rulers are held accountable. And this is why he translates article by article the uh, uh, French constitution of the time. Now, as time passes, a, a lot is written uh, uh, in the Nahda against despotism. It's a big theme. But as state building and nation building and independence happens, uh, of course, the assumption was that, well, now we have political justice because we have independent governments, we have good leaders. Unfortunately, uh, when news, for instance, uh, is, is, is quite a, a voice, a telling voice of the time, but again, it disappears in the 70s and 80s where you have a lot of culturalistic reading of the crisis. A lot of people who write, my God, I don't know, five volumes or 12 volumes uh, revisiting the heritage, the tradition, uh, Turath, and trying to find in it uh, uh, how one could fix this heritage to make it uh, fit the modern world so that we don't end up in this mess. Um, so the idea that the, what was wrong was that uh, we, did, we had not dealt properly with the heritage, that this heritage had become corrupt. So, really a culturalistic reading of the, of the problem. It is only now, and sadly, that the political com is coming back, I think, and one of the most insightful, or the most insightful readings come from ex-political prisoners who have something to say about how these regimes work and why is it that we are in the mess that we are in? Another voice is that of a woman, Nawala Sadawi, who writes, irrespective of what the persona and the writings become later on, but at the time, I'm, I'm speaking about the 50s and the 60s, this woman who writes about sex in Arabic, in plain Arabic, and addresses not uh, biological jargon, but issues of qualities of relationships between people, issues of oppression, and then this linking between gender oppression, economic oppression, political oppression, local and foreign. This linking um, between disease and poverty and oppression, and all the gender critique that will come after her. Another few names here, Marxist readings, who were, you know, drawing our attention to the fact that one should not intellectualize the problem, to say that, wallah, our problem is that we, we think in wrong ways, and that it's all in the mind, that you have to fix the ways of thinking. People who said, hey, we need to pay attention to the form of economy that we have, uh, issues and problems of... Uh, uh, dysfunctional development, uh, peripheral capitalism, and so on. I'm thinking of people like Mahdi Amil, um, Samir Amin, uh, Mahmoud Amin Alim. I will mention also fantastic work done in Islamic theology. Um, Abu Zaid Arkun, who both died uh, in the last few months. People who said, we need to pay attention 
to the human aspect of revelation, its transmission, its formulation, looking at the sacred text uh, as texts to use the humanities, the new disciplines in exploring the sacredness, um, trying to have um, new approaches in order to revitalize Islamic theology. Very important work. Also some of the work done by feminist uh, uh, theologians. And maybe the last uh, thing I will mention, which I find also very interesting, is liberation theology. We are, most of us are familiar with Latin American uh, liberation theology. Um, we find some liberation theology also in the Arab world, and the one I will mention, I think, is the most productive, most interesting one, is the Palestinian Christian liberation theology. You know that in the Latin American context, the question was, my God, how can I be a Christian believer when there is so much injustice around me? In this abject poverty to say that Jesus is among us, how is that possible? And as a result of that questioning, uh, to rethink basic theological conceptions of faith, of power, of, of institutions, and so on. In the Palestinian context, you can imagine how that is compounded, that this holy land is then appropriated by people who claim political right on your houses, on your rights, on your properties, on your future, on your life, in the name of a promise of God, and you then as a Christian are supposed to understand how your God promised this land to them and dispossessed you. So how do you deal with the whole holy message, in fact, in a context like that of Palestine? Again, what I find interesting is this really deep rethinking of issues of faith and justice, and uh, tradition. I come back to the same question. If this much and much more was produced in terms of critical thinking, of becoming wiser, of becoming enlightened, where did this all go? How is it that we can have all of this produced and end up in this despair? And my question is, how come, how, how does the interface between intellectual work, cultural innovation in this sense, translate into po political action? This is what I'm perplexed about, what I would like to understand a little bit, because it seems to me that to be enlightened or to live in an age of enlightenment is not only to get enlightened cognitively, that now you understand better, now you have become wiser, but somehow that you should be able to have a better life, um, have lead a better life. So, 
what is it then that that prevents this translation from this critical intellectual effort into politics now of course i will finally mention our friend kant since you can't have a lecture on what is enlightenment without at least mentioning his name and kant as you know says it's the uh, ability the courage to use your own mind autonomously and i tell myself, yeah, is that enough? Is that the whole story? Even if I get to use my mind quite autonomously, let's not make big uh, uh, claims here, but I still need my ability to, to be able to use my abilities to, to uh, I don't know, to, to associate myself with others, to undertake courses of action, to, 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 to bring about change. So it's not only a question of the inhibition of the, on the cognitive level of, of the use of the reason, but the use of abilities. And I think that's where the problem is. The, the, that's where the drama of the Arab world is. And I think, of course, it has to do with the kinds of regimes we're stuck in. Um, and it is with this per perplexity that I would like to end my talk. Uh, hoping that I did not depress you too much. Thank you. I, uh, uh, as someone who uh, approaches this field from, uh, well, approaching it from a contemporary and social science-oriented point of view, one of the things a person uh, might be interested in is the recent series of Arab human development reports. And these, of course, uh, don't come directly out of the circles of the authors you've been talking about, but they refer to those texts a great deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of dealing with a sense of ages in the Arab world, I wonder uh, if you have an opinion or would like to express thoughts about the significance of the effort embodied in these reports in terms of doing something about the governance, the democracy and development of the region. I think the reports just reflect the same sad incapacity, if you want, that it is not that we don't know what's wrong. The point, we have these reports, and the reports are, to a great extent, quite good. But then, what do you do with them? And as since you mentioned social sciences, I think um, it's very important, if, if one is to address this question of what is, is there enlightenment in the Arab world, I think it's very important to, to, to undertake interdisciplinary work. I have a philosophy training, so the, the only thing I know a little bit how to do is to read texts and to make sense of ideas and sentences and concepts. And, but this is not the whole story. What I would like to do is for social scientists and political scientists to, to tell me, to precisely explore that interface between the intellectual and the political and the social. So I think we need to talk to social scientists and political scientists. <clears throat> I 
there's a big gap um, in your presentation, and it's um, revivalist Islam. Um, it seems to me to be the case that for much of the 20th century, certainly after 1967, mm. it looks like uh, radical Muslims, fundamentalist Muslims, back to the Quran in their own interpretation of Muslims, really have center stage in terms of the development of ideas um, that are a response to the malaise that you are talking about. Yes, because I think that there's so much attention to devoted to that, that you end up having the impression that nothing but Islamic um, political Islam is happening in the Arab world. And the whole point of my book was to say there is also something else, not as spectacular, not as noisy, uh, but it exists. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not shaking popular mass movements, but for me it is significant that it exists. Now, the more tricky and interesting question is, can one say that political Islam is a form of enlightenment? And the, the word that I uh, did not mention here, which is quite central in post-colonial thinking in these debates about culture, uh, crisis, authenticity, renewal, decline, all of this, is the notion of empowerment. No? And I think that in all of these debates, whether we're, we're reading Africans or Latin Americans or uh, uh, Arabs and or others, the question is, the quest is for a sense of self. I have been defined by others, uh, uh, been overpowered by others, so where, how do I develop a sense of self? And of course we know the obvious reactions of nativism, of going back to one's uh, tradition, religion, language, this, that, and then discovering the deadlocks of authenticity or what does it exactly mean. A lot of the critical thinking, I think, uh, turns around this. Now some people say, Identity, this is an old-fashioned thing. We are cosmopolitan. Uh, uh, we are nomads. We live in a global world. Yeah, well, I think that we all need some sense of self. And obviously, people are looking for a sense of self. The question is, I think, the challenge of a post-colonial thought here uh, around culture is, what is an uh, um, a healthy a sense of an empowered self. And here I touch on this notion of power. Does political Islam give me a sense of empowered self? And I th in many ways, of course, yes. If it sort of attaches me or connects me with some familiar tradition, um, with uh, some glorious successful past, uh, especially when it can mobilize a lot of people, um, a lot of means, uh, a lot of faith. Can, can I say that that is an empowered sense of self? And I think here Muslims have more of, of a difficult challenge than others because a Latin American cannot say, well, 
I could revive the Holy Roman Empire and get that sense of power. Africans cannot fall back on some, you know, mega empire that will be on the basis of a faith or a tradition would give them that. The Muslims have that. And I can fall back on a powerful uh, 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 empire, a successful past where I was not the underdog, where I was the leading. But I think that all of that is a very dangerous temptation in the sense that does really that empower me? Also to the use of force. Does force empower me? Yes and no. It is not a clear-cut uh, answer, especially when I'm confronted with people who use force against me. And does force really summarize power? Can power and empowerment be reduced to force? That these are, I think, important questions that need to be addressed in the Arab world because of the rise of this political Islam. And I, I, I would be careful in it, Yanni. It's not, it's, they're not easy questions to discard. Uh, uh, these are complex questions. And the revival of Islam has, I think, taken different forms. And the answer might change from one form to another. Are we talking about uh, military organizations? Would that empower me? Do those, or spiritual revival? One has to make a differentiation there, I think. A few points about these two comments. Yes, I was very careful with this business of enlightenment as we know it, the Western Enlightenment, because it's a whole um, field of study which is being nowadays lately revised in some, in some uh, important ways. So this is why I wanted to avoid that. And I wanted to avoid um, just going into an exercise of seeing how this applies to that, etc. This is why I want to stick, I wanted to stick to this common sense understanding of it before we, we develop anything further. Now, having said that, of course, 
Kant in this famous What is Enlightenment uh, um, plays a whole lot of tricks between the public use of reason and the private use of reason and uh, you know he's censored by the king who tells him you better shut up about religion and he will never write anything uh, controversial after that. He was operating under despotism. And this enlightenment that we know, whatever that designates, uh, developed under conditions of, of despotism and um, bumped uh, several times with a lot of setbacks. And uh, so, so yes, that is a complex uh, business. Now, about having enlightened thinkers and having a, a public opinion that doesn't go with it, I think here again, social scientists are important. Um, I am also careful here when I say, okay, uh, I tell myself when I speak of enlightenment, are, I, am I talking about these 12 guys that I, so they got, who got enlightened? They and I who read them? Who? How did this um, get disseminated? Media, education uh, institutions. And I think that's where the real disaster in the Arab world uh, uh, is, because the regimes we got produced a damage that perhaps is unrepairable by damaging the whole educational system, for instance, when you have uh, indoctrination, uh, mediocrity, uh, uh, the corruption of the whole system. Um, learning has been has been corrupted in its heart. So what can you expect from generations and generations to come? The media, either under uh, state censorship or uh, big money, petro money, w w how are you going to disseminate this enlightened? So, yes. Thank you. Scholars, but also teachers. I can see it used across the disciplines in the humanities and social sciences. Excellent reading for a number of courses. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about um, today, perhaps in the book, is the comparative perspective. Yeah. I mean, you alluded a little bit to it, but um, you bring in um, material from Germany, from Latin America, and from Africa. And I was wondering whether, you know, looking back at Yes, I think I only spoke of the negative because I wanted to make my point. No? There are movements, there are attempts, of course. There are people coming together and trying to do stuff. 
And there are, there is this new corner of uh, uh, the, this other corner of the Arab world. And of course, when we speak about the Arab world, this is a big area which is very different in its different corners with different histories. And the Gulf, of course, is a story by itself. Now, Al Jazeera is much of a double bind, I think, because on the one hand, especially at the beginning when it started, my God, these talk shows and these debates and uh, so much could be said that the national televisions could not say. But then the Islamicization of, of Al Jazeera and uh, the very strong ideological turn that it took uh, so ma makes it into a mixed uh, uh, phenomenon. But I think that you're right, the uh, Gulf is a very interesting place to observe. M me coming from Lebanon, of course, can discard that and say, you know, what, what, they, they just have money, they don't have culture, uh, uh, they buy stuff, they buy museums, they buy universities, but where, is the, where are the people, who is involved, who visits these museums, uh, nothing will come out of it. I am very intrigued by the Gulf, and sometimes I think that inadvertently, as by mistake or as a side product, maybe some, some movement would, would be created there. Because I think a lot of money is being invested. And I, I, I wouldn't discard it offhand and say, who knows, maybe something will come out of it. Uh, I was in Doha uh, last Christmas and I was very, very impressed. I visited the beautiful uh, Museum of Islamic Art, and, but then the University City. <gasps> and these slogans in yellow, I don't know if some of you saw it, uh, big slogans in English and in uh, Arabic saying, think, imagine. And I was wondering, my God, does the government realize what this means? But, and it is all funded by uh, the Qatar Foundation which also has these ads, by the way, on the CNN and other uh, global satellites. The thing about uh, uh, Doha, I think, is that um, Qatar, the ambition of the rulers is to make of themselves a global center, not that much an Arab sort of thing. But yeah, Arabs, you have to include the poor relatives in a way, but the, 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 the way they want to locate themselves on the map is the more global uh, 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 way. But again, I tell myself if in those university cities, if they could, I don't know, give scholarships for 10 kids from Syria, 10 kids from Lebanon, from Egypt, who knows, maybe one little girl or one boy would, would get something out of it. So I am curious to see what, what will happen there. Yes. I have family in Qatar, and I don't think any of them have read Immanuel Kant, but they're in <laughs> they're enlightened. And um, according to them, not and online you can find information about it. But the, the person behind, very powerfully behind, much of this education and university is a woman. Yes, the wife of the Emir. Yes, and she's gone to the United States, and she's done extremely intensive um, research to find the best universities in yeah, the United yeah. States for. Yeah, it is, it is quite a stunning phenomenon, yeah. Abu Dhabi, for instance, has this project, Al-Kalima, uh, which is, uh, has the ambition of translating a thousand books a year. 
Well, who knows? Maybe the Nahda of the time of the Tahtawi, which also uh, translation had a lot to do with it. Who knows? Maybe with this translation movement, something positive will be brought to this messy Arab uh, state. Yes. Well, I think they have been participating in this, uh, in this uh, debate. Now, of course, as I said, one has to be very careful because these are very different corners of the region. And, but nevertheless, my, my hypothesis or my assumption is that in spite of these differences, there is some kind of a universe of discourse in the Arab world in the sense that uh, these authors um, share concerns, uh, they answer one another. Uh, uh, I think of Al-Urwi, Al-Jabiri, um, Al-Khatibi, uh, Abdul Kabir Al-Khatibi, um, and many others who are really part of this discussion. Now, um, how is the Maghreb faring these days? Um, I think Morocco is a fascinating place. Things are moving. Uh, they have fantastic social movements, the feminist movement. influences. And I was particularly surprised over the last few years to see how um, a national historical narrative um, integrates the history of the, what are probably called the Mediterranean minorities who lived there during the colonial period. Mm -hmm. They've all gone, of course, but now that they mm -hmm. are part of the national story. Yeah, and I think the sad the regime of Tuni Tunisia, for instance, is... Well, of course, it's, this regi it's the regime which cultivates the cosmopolitan discourse and makes yeah. uh, sometimes gestures public, sometimes more substantive, substantive sometimes. Yeah, but what, did, what, what does it do to enlightenment, a regime like that? Mm. During the 1990s, there was a program, again, top-down program of educational reform. Again, the programs there, what about the application to come, to come back to the, the point of practical action that you mentioned? Um, the program looks enlightened when you read it, mm. teaching Chinesian children about uh, <coughs> religious dialogue, for example, but the, but the application, I think, has often been very uneven. Also in a police state, I mean, you can teach stuff uh, on and sentences in books, and, and when you have a police state... Yes, yes, there's paradox and contradiction. with Israel that's a problem for the development of uh, new ideas about how to solve the Arab problem? Is it an excuse that is being used and so forth? I mean, that's, how does the concern with Israel fit into this development? For these critical thinkers, interestingly, Israel is not an obsession. And this is, for me, the interesting part in this, in this uh, literature, is that, of course, Israel is an enemy. Uh, Israel is not doing any good to these uh, people there, no, neither to the Palestinians, nor to Lebanese, nor... So definitely Israel is a problem, is an enemy. 
Uh, so is Western foreign policy uh, very often. But I think one of the challenges that these critical thinkers uh, meet is that, of course, you can spend your time accusing the others. And uh, this is a wonderful temptation, because who, who wants to put oneself in question? That's a much tougher enterprise. And since you have an enemy, of course, you, it's so comfortable, convenient to say, well, I'm in a best because of Israel, because of this. But these uh, critical thinkers will say, yes, there is uh, this enemy, and yes, there are these problems, but there is also some th work that we need to do on ourselves. And that's the wonderful part of it, I think. Europe. What conversation? All kinds of just to look around and see what other people are doing. Mm. Get ideas. Mm. Whereas instead of just deciding that just as, as Western Europe did, but they know what the idea should be, and more or less telling everyone else. I think I think there are two obvious reasons uh, uh, answers to that. First of all, because Europe knows that's where science has been produced. I mean, well, well, see, I wait a minute. So, in the sense that. Objectively, I think, factually, there has been science and knowledge produced in Europe in these last centuries that has not been produced elsewhere. So there is a superiority of knowledge in that sense, a factual one. Yeah. Yeah. And secondly, we consider that Europe knows because Europe is powerful. The powerful has a claim on truth and knowledge. And much of the post-colonial work has been to deconstruct that. And it is a big challenge. I mean, some of this, this, this mechanism I observed in black American literature, which is fantastic. And I was telling uh, um, yesterday during the dinner that that was, f for me, was the, the starting point and the eye opener. Be because when I read Du Bois, double consciousness, double, the double gaze, double critique, 
When I have def been defined by somebody else who is more powerful, who is better dressed, who knows stuff better than me, it will take me quite a lot of time and effort and thinking and struggle to re-own myself. It is a difficult struggle because it's not an intellectual game. It's not one day waking up and... Uh, no, no, th these are... These are things that happen in time and in history. And I think the power element is, is defining. Well, when you mentioned loudly, I just started remembering that you said, you know, that the, the West is confining the Arab world by their history. They're, they're saying this is the history of the Arab world, and so thus the Arab world has to be built like this. But the Larawi is also someone who said, listen, you Arabs, uh, we need to understand the, the complexity of the West, that the West is this, and but then the West is uh, the, the humanist uh, uh, endeavors, but also the colonial endeavors, that I, as an Arab, have to need to, for, I'm forced to understand that and deploy a lot of effort to make sense of that. I cannot afford to have a superficial understanding of this powerful opponent or interlocutor. And again, it's not an easy game. Thank you.